This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 56 this morning. Isaiah 56, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through Eight. Let me um, just really encourage you. We're not going to put the put the these verses up on screen. I want you to have your Bibles open, and if you want to, um, um, I'll be using the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. That's uh, free in the Bible app too, uh, and so you can you have access access to it even if you don't have one. Um, and so let me just encourage you, have your, Bible, have your Bible open as we walk through the text together. But today we begin kind of the, the final climactic part of the book of Isaiah, which we're going to be looking at through April, through the end of, of May. Chapters 56 through 66 are, are really kind of what everything has been pointing to. In, in Isaiah. So we, we begin that journey today in chapter 56. And so let's look this morning at verses 1 through 8, which is really about getting in sync with the heart of God. Let's look at, the, at God's word together. This is what the Lord says. Preserve justice and do what is right. For my salvation is coming soon. And my righteousness will be revealed. Happy is the person who does this. The son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it. And keeps his hand from doing any evil. No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, The Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, Look, I'm a dried up tree. For the Lord says this. For the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. As for the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to become his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold firmly to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the declaration of the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel. I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. Father, as we prepare to dig into this text right now, we pray that your spirit would open our our eyes and our minds and our, our hearts to be able to understand this and receive it and internalize it and, and apply it to come out through our living. We, we pray that we would take this time to reset where we need to reset 
so that our, our hearts would be in sync with your heart. God, give us your heart and show us that through this, this text t- today. Lord, we, we just ask you to, to, to work now and to open up your word for us, just like the flowers that we see opening up all around us right now, everywhere we turn. We, we pray that you would make this text open to us like flowers in the sun that, that we could understand it and apply it, live it. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. One day this week I was having trouble getting my, my devices synced. <laughs> I do a lot of talking now on the phone with my, my AirPods in so my hands can be free and I've got these things in my ears, but it's programmed through the phone. <laughs> and, so, and so one day this past week my, my AirPods were not syncing with my phone so I'm trying to talk to people and the airpods are going in and out like and it's about to turn me inside out like that's modern life right trying to get all of our different devices synced up and that day this past week I actually had to I, I, I got so tired of it I just powered down the phone completely turned it completely off and then turned it back on to kind of like reset so it could reset everything and sometimes that happens in our relationship with the Lord. Our hearts get out of sync with the heart of God and we need to come away and we need to hit the reset button so that our hearts are in tune, they're synced with his heart. And this is one of those texts that's great for doing that. And we see a couple of different ways here where our hearts can be synced with the heart of God. God. So the first thing that we see here in verses 1 and 2 is sinking with the heart of God in our, our conduct. But before we even dig into verses 1 and 2, I want us to kind of, it's been a few weeks now since we've been in Isaiah, and I want us to kind of like briefly sort of reorient ourselves to kind of where we've come in Isaiah so far and where we're, we're going. What's kind of the big picture flyover? So in chapters 1 through 39, what we saw there was the, the unrighteousness of, of people. And not just the unrighteousness of ancient Israelites, but our own unrighteousness. We saw there that, you know, if God gave us what we all deserve, then what we would get is judgment. <laughs> but then in chapters 40 through 55, we saw that in his love, that, that God was going to provide. God is promising in chapters 40 through 55 to provide a servant, a perfectly righteous servant who would, would come and live a perfectly righteous life and then suffer for our unrighteousness, actually bear our iniquities, and, and of course, we know that that suffering servant was Jesus. Well, now, what we're going to see in this final part, in chapters 56 through 66, is that one day Jesus is coming again, 
to make all things new. Everything wrong is going to be made right. Everything broken in this world is going to be fixed. Everything sad in this world is going to come untrue. There's going to be a, a new heaven and earth. Everything will be made new. Death will be no more. And, and believers will, will, will live with one another and the, and the Lord with, with glorified and perishable bodies in a new heaven and earth, right? That's our future. That's glorious. So how do we live until then? Until that day. That's what... That's what verses one and two are all about, sinking with the heart of God in our, in our conduct. How do we live until that day? We see part of that in, here in verses one and two. Let's look at it. This is what the Lord says. Preserve justice and do what is right. For my salvation is coming soon and my righteousness will be revealed. Happy is the person who does this, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Notice the emphasis here in verses one and two on doing. He says in verse one, preserve justice and do what is right. Verse two, happy is the person who does this. He's not talking about people who have good intentions, but don't do. He's not talking about people who just have kind of a lot of, a lot of theological knowledge or Bible knowledge, but they don't practice what they know. You know, you can know a lot of things. You can know even right things. You can know a lot of Bible and a lot of good sound theology. But like, if you're not practicing that, what, what is that all about? I mean, orthodoxy without orthopraxy, that's just like religious studies. That's not Christianity. Christianity is about living it. I was listening to an interview this week with Barnabas Piper, who's one of John Piper's sons, and Barnabas is a pastor now himself in, in Tennessee, but he's talking about growing up in this obviously godly family and in the church and all that and knew like tons of, of Bible and sound theology and he could like debate people on theology when he was just a teenager and, and, and things like that, but he was incredibly spiritually immature. And he said the worst part about it was that I was spiritually immature and didn't think I was immature. <laughs> because I knew a lot. I, I thought I was, I was mature and I was anything but that. And in fact, I was vulnerable to all kinds of really destructive sin patterns in my life that were gonna come back to, to bite me later on. That's, that's kind of the situation here with, 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 with these Jews in ancient Israel. Because their, their problem was not so much that they didn't know the right stuff. Their problem was not in their personal piety. It, like the problem was more like in the way they were treating other people. They had a great commandment problem. They weren't loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that it was obvious because they weren't loving their neighbors as themselves. And so in verse one, when Isaiah says, preserve justice and do what, he, what is right, he's talking about treating people right. The way you treat other people. Do you really think that that can be somehow divorced from your relationship with God? No. It's like one of the primary things that diagnoses where you are in your relationship with God. How are you treating other people? 
And that, that begins like with the people that are closest to you. Husbands, how are you treating your wives? Wives, how are you treating your husbands? Parents, how are you treating your kids? Kids, how are you treating your parents? Who, how are you treating the people that you're around every day and in in where you work or where you go to school? How do you treat people on social media? How do you treat people uh, that check you out at the, at the grocery store? How do you treat servers in restaurants? Let me tell you something. You represent the Lord Jesus Christ. You represent this church. Don't go in a restaurant and be rude to servers. Don't be a lousy, stingy tipper. It's just, just so dishonoring to, 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 to God. Listen, you, you represent him. At, at all times, how are you treating people, whether that relationship is close or casual or whatever? What about, what about the people that are the most vulnerable and the most neglected in our world? You know, what about, do we, do we just kind of, are they invisible to us? Just kind of pass them by? What about people in, in, in other countries too who, have, who are either economically impoverished or in many cases spiritually impoverished on top of it, who have little or no access to the gospel? Like, do we even think about those people? Are we sharing of our resources so that their burdens can be lifted and so that they can have more access to the gospel? Or is our management of our resources just kind of all about us and we're like the people in the parable that Jesus tells that we're just using what we have to build, you know, bigger barns, bigger kingdoms, more stuff for ourselves. If that's the case, then you're living like your life is all about you. And that's a huge problem, right? Because what does he say here in verse one? God says, my, my salvation is coming soon. My, my righteousness will be revealed. He's talking about the second coming of Christ. Are you ready for that day? Are you living in such a way, are you treating other people, or you're managing your resources or whatever in such a way that you would not be ashamed if that were today? My dad used to have a little thing that he, he, he had stuck it, a sticker, he had, a thing he'd actually typed it, typed it out in the days when we typed such things on typewriters, <laughs> typed it out on a, stick, on a sticky note and put it on his bathroom mirror, so I guess so you would see it every morning, and it said it could be today. Would you love his appearing? Would you love it if it were today? Jonathan Edwards, as a young man, once wrote this resolution. He said, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. And then he says in verse 2, happy is the person who does this. Happy is the person who, who, who lives this way. Listen, God's way is not just the right way to live, it's the happiest way to live. It's the best way to live. God's commands are for our good. They are for our flourishing. God's way is the, the, the best way. It's the way that can enable us to flourish in life. It's the happiest way. And then in, in verse 2, he gives us two commands. One is very specific. It's about the Sabbath. And then the other is general. It keeps his hand from doing any evil. So how do those, how do those two things relate? Well, part of it is that we need to understand what the Sabbath was, was all about. Because keeping the Sabbath, even in the Old Testament, was not just sort of about 
stuff that you did on one day. Keeping the Sabbath was about taking one day to reorient your spiritual compass so that you would understand that every day, that seven days are about God and that your time, the living of your days is for his glory. So it was about taking one day to kind of recalibrate for the impact of every day. And as we talked about earlier, you know, when we come together and, and worship on the Lord's Day, a, a powerful underlying message of that, of why we come together, is that it, it, is, it is a weekly reminder that God is the center of the universe, not you. That life is about him, that our time is about him, right? And when we keep it in that way, and that's our mindset, right, that life is about God and not us, then we're more likely to keep this general command, right, to keep our hand from any kind of evil in our conduct. So the first thing we see in verses one and two is about sinking with the heart of God in our conduct. The second thing in verses three through eight is sinking with the heart of God in our compassion, in our compassion. Let's look at verse three. No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, look, I am a dried up tree. So the thing we need to understand here is that foreigners and eunuchs were outsiders and outcasts in that culture. Foreigners were outsiders. They were, they were people who had been born outside of Israel. They had come there as refugees or immigrants or, or whatever, but they, they had been you know, raised in, in pagan environments, idol-worshiping in, in environments. But he says here in verse three that many of these people have done what? They've joined themselves to the Lord. They have chosen to follow and worship the one true God. They, they, have, they have, from their hearts, they have joined their, themselves to, to, to him, but they were still looked down upon because they were outsiders. Eunuchs were outcasts. So in that culture, there, there, were, there were men in ancient times who were castrated either as part of uh, pagan rites, many of these people had come out of paganism, and so in some cases it was that, in other cases they were, they were, they were castrated because of the, they were, in some cases they were slaves, or servants who were doing certain, certain jobs, um, and so in some cases they were, they were forcibly castrated, that kind of thing, and, and even on top of that, in ancient times, there was a real stigma attached, um, not only to that, but in just in not being able to have children in general that carried a stigma um, w- with it. And so the point is, these people, again, were outcast. 
The, the, they were, the eunuchs were looked upon as less than. They were looked upon as people who had something wrong with them. There was some, there was this, you know, this, 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 what they considered to be an abomination, a, a blemish, a defect. And so, like, we don't, we don't want them worshiping with us. Outcast, that's the point. So, foreigners, eunuchs, outsiders, outcasts, they were denigrated by people, look, look, look down upon. And a lot of times when people are denigrated by others over a long period of time, when they are told over and over again and everything about the culture is reinforcing to them and making the point, you are less than others, then often people can begin to think of themselves that way. And you, and you see that here in, in verse three. You know, you had these foreigners who some of them were saying to themselves, you know, the, the Lord will exclude me from his people. You had the eunuchs unable to, you know, procreate, bear children, uh, have children uh, saying, yeah, look, I'm a dried up tree. I'm, I'm an unfruitful person. And God is saying here, don't you say that about yourself. If, if you have joined yourself to me, you are my child. You belong to me. That's the highest honor of, of anything. And so God is saying here, no foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me. No, the Lord has included you. He has brought you in. He's adopted you as his own. You are included. No matter what other people may say, the Lord includes you. And to these eunuchs, who, are, who, who have been told, you know, you are something's wrong with you, you are unfruitful, who are saying, look, I'm a dried up tree. God is saying, don't you say that about yourself because in my grace and my power, I can give you a fruitfulness in your life that is infinitely greater than the ability to be fruitful in, with ch having children. And, and, and speaking of these, these eunuchs, in verse four, for the Lord says this, for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. Wow. And notice what, Notice, notice what, what the Lord says about these people in verse four, right? Uh, for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my, to my covenant. In other words, these are people who have come to, to who follow the one true God and they, and they, and they love what he loves <laughs> and they want what he wants. What is what does God say about them in verse five? He says, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. Remember, these people, these people can, cannot, can never have children. They can never have sons and daughters. And so God is saying here, I'll give you something better better than sons and daughters. These people will have no, they won't have children to carry on their name. God says, I'll give you something better than that. I will give you an everlasting name. 
And the compassion of the Lord here is, is beautiful. Um, this is a picture of, uh, of Yad Vashem in Jerusalem. It's the Holocaust Museum in, in Jerusalem. And every time I go through it, this, this room gets me. But it's a room where you walk in and your eyes are immediately drawn up and around because there are photos of, of people all around you. You're surrounded by people who perished in the Holocaust. And when the state of Israel was founded in the aftermath of World War II, they, they, you know, they've just gone through the Holocaust, millions of Jewish people murdered. And so they wondered, how can we, how can we remember these people? Like we've just been through this catastrophe. We can't forget these people. How do we, how can we honor them? We just, we can't let them be forgotten. And so they, they built this museum and it's called Yad Vashem, which comes from verse five. It comes from Isaiah 56, five. It means a memorial and a name. In other words, the point is we, don't, we, don't, we will never forget you. We will never forget you. We, we are going to give you this, this memorial and this name. We are, we are, we are never, never going to lose, lose, let you be lost in our, in our memories. And the point here that is being made here is that for the outcasts of this world who are so often forgotten by other people, our God does not forget. Our God does not forget the outcasts of this world. When, when you read the Gospels, you see this over and over and over again. Jesus, who had steeped himself in Isaiah, he quotes Isaiah more than any other book of the Bible. And when you look at the ministry of Christ in the Gospels, look at his heart for the outcast, right? You know, the, 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 the disfigured, the disabled, uh, the untouchables, lepers, physical lepers, moral lepers, prostitutes, things like, people like that. And then his heart for foreigners, for outsiders, right? For Gentiles, Samaritans. That's, that's the heart of God that he, that he calls us to. He calls us to that, that same compassion. And speaking of outsiders, look at what he says in verses six and seven. He says, as for the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to become his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold firmly to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, first of all, look at what verse 6 says says about these people. They're foreigners, right? They've, they've come from other countries to Israel, but there they have found out about the one true God. And what have they done? They have joined themselves to the Lord. Not because anyone made them, but, but, but from their hearts, out of love, they have chosen to follow him, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, right? This is why I, I love believers' baptism. Not only 
do I believe it's what the New Testament teaches about because I believe that when we read the New Testament, the baptisms that we see happening in the New Testament are of believers, but also believers' baptism best makes the point that is being made here. And that point is that you do not belong to God because of your parents. You do not belong to God because you were raised in church. You must choose, every person must choose to join themselves to the Lord, to follow Christ from your heart. And see, these, these people have done that. They have, they have done that again. They love God. They love God. They, they love him from their hearts. They, they love what he loves. They want what he wants. And what does God say about them in verse seven? He says, I will bring them to my holy mountain. Now stop for a second. Because when he talks about the holy mountain, he, you know, that's associated with Jerusalem. It's associated with the temple mount where a lot of these people were excluded from worship. And God is saying here, not only are they welcome, I will personally escort them there. <laughs> I will bring them. I will bring them there. I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now Jesus quotes the latter part of verse seven in the gospels when? It's when he cleanses the temple, right? When he goes into the temple and he overturns the tables of the money changers and, and drives them out and all of that, what does he do? As he's doing that, he's quoting Isaiah 56, seven, it is written. God says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Now most people misunderstand that text. They misunderstand why Jesus was so angry. Well, Jesus was angry because of the way that foreigners were being treated in the temple. He's angry because of the way that Gentiles were being treated. It wasn't just sort of the commerce and the tackiness of what was going on. It, it was the fact that Gentiles were being prevented from worshiping in the one part of the temple where they were allowed to worship. The temple in Jesus' day was composed of four parts. The inner part was the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go. The, the next ring out was the court of Israel that was for circumcised Jewish males only. The third part out was the court of the women that was for Jewish women. And then this outer part was the court of the Gentiles where supposedly foreigners could worship. But see, the people who managed the temple had made that court of the Gentiles so inhospitable to worship that the Gentiles couldn't worship in the one part where they were allowed to go. They couldn't go anywhere else in the temple. There were signs that were posted in, 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 in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic forbidding them from going beyond that point in the temple. And so 
this core to the Gentiles was like a, it was like a beehive. It was like the, if you've seen you know, the, new, the, the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, except for uh, instead of paper all over the floor, it was blood. It was the blood of hundreds of thousands of animals that were killed as sacrifices. And that purchasing and that slaughtering and all that stuff is happening in that court of the Gentiles. There was no way they could, they could, they could worship God there. And Jesus sees this and he's infuriated because it symbolizes to him the way that Israel has abandoned their mission. The mission that God had given them was to bring the Gentile, to be a light to the nations in order to bring the nations in, not shut them out. And see, they were, they were doing the exact opposite. That's why Jesus was, was so angry, right? Listen, be careful about excluding those whom God has included. I was once pastor to a, to a man in a former church, and this man had been part of a church in Selma, Alabama in the 1960s, which, of course, was a flashpoint for the civil rights movement, and so much racial unrest was going on, and Selma was kind of a riding the, riding the epicenter of all that. And so he was a deacon in that church, and you know, they were having this deacon's meeting, and so the topic of discussion comes up, you know, what, well, what if black people come to our church? And this, this, this guy stands up in the meeting, and he says, that will happen over my dead body. He went home that very night and fell stone cold dead that very night. Don't, don't you trifle with the living God you know, you know the, the, the audacity, <laughs> the audacity of talking about, you know, who, who's welcome in the house when it's not your house. <laughs> this is God's house. God says, my house will be called a house of prayer. For who? For all nations, every tribe and tongue. Right? Every tribe and tongue. And no matter what your background, right? No matter what your, you know, uh, I mean, if, if you have made the choice, you know, to, to follow God, it means that we've all been adopted into, into this, one, this one family, this one family of, of, of God. And God brings us all together, right, of different, you know, different colors and backgrounds and different languages and, you know, and different modes of uh, lifestyles and all, all, all of that. As another example, <laughs> speaking of that, from the 60s, this one from Southern California. Uh, but, but during the late 60s, there was a huge move of God that was happening among young people. And a lot of these, a lot of these young people were coming out of hippie culture, uh, particularly in California. You know, they were, had been part of that counterculture and you know, and, and the spirit just began to do this incredible work. And you had all these young people in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, the, the Jesus movement. And these young people were just coming to God. It was truly, when you look back at the history of revivals in our country, this is just one of the greatest um, was what was happening among young people at that point. But um, there was a, a church in Orange County in California, in Costa Mesa, and there's a guy named Chuck Smith that was pastor of the church. And so it wasn't far from the beach. And this was kind of a you know, 
very kind of straight-laced sort of, you know, community at that point and everything and church and, and all. But these, these young people coming out of hippie culture were starting to get saved. And they started coming to that church. They were flocking there. And in Southern California, there are oil deposits off the coast. So it'll, oil will bubble up and there are these uh, little uh, globs of oil sometimes on the sand on the beach about the size of a quarter. And if you step on it, then <laughs> you better watch your carpet, you know, when you get home because it can mess it up. Well, you had these young people who were starting to come to this church off the beach and they were, they were barefoot. And so they're messing up the carpet and the pews and, and all that. And, and, and Pastor Chuck got to church one Sunday and he said there was a sign up prominently displayed, uh, shoes, and, shoes and shirts required. And he took it down. And after church, he had this big meeting with the, uh, with the church leadership and they got on their knees and prayed. And they determined that they would remove the carpet and the pews before they would hinder one young person from coming to Christ. Now the point of that story is not so much about carpets and pews. It's about wanting only what God wants. It's about getting your heart in sync with him to the point that you just want what he wants. And God's heart is for all peoples to know him. He is the great gatherer. God's about gathering people, right, from every tribe and tongue. Look at verse 8. This is the declaration of the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel. I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. Now, listen, one of the main themes of Isaiah is what? God's going to bring the dispersed exiles home. One of the main themes that we've seen in this book is that Isaiah is prophesying of the exile that is to come but then he's also prophesying that the people are going to be restored to the land. So the prophecy is that the dispersed are going to be brought back. But God is saying here in verse 8 that after I do that, after I bring the dispersed Israelites home, don't you think that my work is done? It's not. Because what does he say here? I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. In other words, Gentiles. Now, fast forward to Jesus. What does, he, what does Jesus say in John 10 and verse 16? And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. They're not Jewish. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. And most of us are part of those sheep <laughs> that were outsiders, that were brought into the fold. Listen, we were strangers to God's covenant and God's promises and all of that, right? That's our background, ultimately, uh, most of us here are Gentiles, right? That's our background, to outs outside, outside. Thank God that he had the heart to bring us, to, to, to bring us in, right, to, to gather us, and that, he, and that he gave his son, who was not only Messiah of Israel, but Lord of the world, and that Jesus bled and died on the cross for us, so that we can be forgiven, raised from the dead, so that we could have life, and that the Spirit regenerated our hearts, and brought us from death to life and that the Father has now adopted us 
as his own sons and daughters. And now he calls us to go forth and be on mission. Be on mission with the great gatherer. To gather more into his family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for the way that you have, have, have brought us in. We thank you for the compassion that you had for us when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were still in, in rebellion against you, your son loved us so much that he gave himself for us. We, we pray that you would give us your heart. May our hearts be in sync with your heart and with the mission that you have given us. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 